Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 37 and 38, Special Operations, Espionage and the Role of Intelligence Agencies. This is the first time we are having an episode on a special operations, I would say, because we had some previous episodes recorded on espionage and the intelligence agencies, primarily from the European perspective. Uh, but today, to dissect the topic from the special operations perspective as well, today we have with us uh, Mick Mulroy. Hi, Mick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Great to be here, Omkar. Thank you very much, Mick, uh, for giving us your precious time. I have been seeing that uh, you have been really busy and I really uh, love the insights, I would say, that you provide uh, through your opinion pieces and as well as the quotes that you provide as well uh, to several news. I've been following it on LinkedIn. So I really appreciate, you know, for giving us this precious time of yours to provide the insights on this topic. Absolutely. And thanks for saying that. Yes, I've been yes. I've been very busy, I think, just like every military and defense analyst uh, on yes. TV with everything that's going on right now. Yes, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Mick, to just, you know, begin with, uh, I mean, like before we take uh, completely a jump into the topic, uh, I would like to uh, know, like, you know, your background and, you know, uh, in general, like how you ended up being what you are at the moment, because I see that. You have a very much wide range of experience, even in the military domain. Uh, so can you please provide us a little background on your both academic, professional journey and, you know, currently uh, the kind of analysis that you do in the public domain as well? Absolutely. So I was, uh, I moved around a lot. So I moved uh, from California, Massachusetts, Georgia as a kid. My dad was a professor. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm an Irish American. So a lot of Irish Americans come from military backgrounds. So my dad was... Uh, an academic scientist. Um, and then I, uh, I just decided to join the Marine Corps. I enlisted. I served uh, as a tanker. And then I uh, became an officer. I served uh, as a judge advocate and then as an infantry officer. And then was recruited into the Central Intelligence Agency in 1997, and I went into what's called the Special Activities Center, at least it is now, which is uh, the special operations component of the Central Intelligence Agency. It takes primarily from Green, Army Green Berets, uh, Marine Recon and MARSOC, Army Rangers, SEALs, uh, and, and some standard infantry Marines like myself. Uh, and that's that's how I got in there. And then what it does, it's a group that functions under a different authority than the military. Uh, and then it, uh, it it has the ability be, to be covert. We can get more into that as we go on. 
And so I served primarily in conflict zones, as you would guess, a paramilitary officer, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, Syria, uh, Somalia, a lot of them, and a lot of places around the world, especially throughout Africa, Uganda. Okay. Uh, and then I got, I was going to retire and my uh, future business partner, who was also uh, from special operations, he was a Navy SEAL and JSOC, uh, a squadron commander. Uh, he had two more years. So I was asked to, and I had the privilege of serving as the deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East under secretaries Mattis and then Asper. And then, then I retired, retired, and now I'm up here in Montana. And we have a consulting advising group that focuses on conflicts, how to end them, how to keep them restarting, and then helping those that have been most adversely affected. And it's called the Lobo Institute. And that's where I am today. And I'm also an ABC News National Security and Defense Analyst. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's a really quite a, I would say, a wide range of background. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure that you'll be bringing a lot of expertise because I've been following your post through Lobo Institute as well. And I really hope, uh, you know, uh, the contribution kind of extends to what we see as a critical perspective these days that we need in the national security domain. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And to, you know, begin with the topic, I would say, uh, as we have a broad range of audience. So can you tell us firstly, what is a special operation? So a special operation is is distinguished in a couple different ways. Um, I think maybe it might be helpful to start with special operation forces, because that's one of the biggest distinguishing features. It is a specially trained military element that conducts the operation. So in the United States, when it comes to external, so foreign special operations, because there is versions of it within especially federal law enforcement, foreign special operations the predominant group is in the in the u.s military uh when it comes to the u.s and it's called special operations command it's it's roughly around sixty thousand, so that's a pretty significant size and it includes all the groups i already mentioned uh you know seals okay. rangers green berets etc and then in in my and then in the intelligence field it's predominantly the group I already mentioned in my background, Special Activities Center, which is people chosen from SOCOM essentially, and then given additional training in how to be, you know, to put it in the vernacular, spies, right? So operations officers. So we, we are a hybrid. We do uh, special operations like direct actions, unconventional warfare, counterterrorism, uh, but we also collect intelligence in austere environment in hostile environments. So we're a hybrid in, in my group. So specifically to what is a, a special operation? First, it, it involves units that were specially selected, trained, and equipped. Um, higher than conventional forces to do certain mission sets. Now, some of the mission sets are also done by conventional forces. So if you were to see an army or a Marine infantry unit do a raid on a compound, it would look very similar as if you saw the highest level in JSOC, um, you know, the Navy component, uh, yes. the vernacular SEAL Team 6, or the Army component 
uh, Delta Force, right? And, and they don't use those terms, but that's what they're known as publicly. But it would look very similar, but one element, Delta, for example, in, in six, uh, SEAL Team 6, they're trained specifically to do the highest level missions when it comes to that mission set. So it is a special operation, but it's not just confined to them in that scenario. In other scenarios, um, unconventional warfare, my unit did a lot of that. That is essentially inserting behind enemy lines, building up a, uh, a, a, an insurgency, if you will, or, or doing sabotage, et cetera. That's a very specialized mission too. And it takes special, op forces, special operations forces to do it, but it is a special mission set too. So that's, I'm, I'm distinguishing the two because there is a, a crossover and when I was in the Pentagon, in addition to doing our national defense strategy, I was involved with our irregular warfare annex to that strategy. And in that, okay. we really tried to make sure that uh, both the conventional and unconventional units were playing a part in un uh, irregular warfare. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting, I would say, uh, difference between the traditional uh, military missions and the special operations. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, I would say from a point of view of actually executing the operations, so are there any differences between special operations and the traditional military missions? So there is, and there's two components, I would say, under special operations. But to start with the broader picture, um, again, special operations units tend to be, they spend a lot more time in selection, and it's not just you know, how many push-ups and how fast you can run. It's also your personality. You know, are you a team player? Are you a problem solver? Can you function independently? That's that's not always necessary for a conventional unit, um, but it is for a special operations unit. So selection is very different. And then generally speaking, they're trained to a higher level. They spend more time in training and uh, in the military, or in my case, the CIA spends more money on your training and then you get equipment that is perhaps more advanced than the conventional forces so it's it really starts with the unit itself but then it's also at the highest level on both sides so if you're looking at um you know a, a mission that would involve the most assets not just with the unit but satellite coverage drone coverage uh the big cia coming in and focusing and providing your intelligence. So you tend to get the best support as well as also have the best uh, trained people and the best equipment. It's, it's kind of a yes. combination of all those. Okay. And then inside special operations, and we can get into this more, but you have Title 10, which is US military, and that's what SOCOM falls under. And then you have Title 50, which is the CIA, and that's what special activities falls under. Title 50 is for covert operations, and it's the only ones that the U.S. government can deny, uh, essentially say they had uh, no uh, participation in it, and it applies to the people as well, whereas under Title 10, the military, it can be clandestine. In other words, you can try to hide your true affiliations, but, you, but the U.S. government can't deny it. So that's the differencing uh, features because of the authorities under U.S. law of the two special operations. 
elements of the United States. Interesting. And uh, as you mentioned about, you know, the training uh, related aspects. So in general, I'm asking from the intelligence agencies point of view, so like how do intelligence agencies recruit and train their operatives for covert uh, missions? Because I believe uh, this is very much different than what the desk job is, right? It's it's not it's going to Certainly, be certain. Yes. I would say yeah. Yes. yes, and the CIA's always had a combination of both, all the way back to our inception from the Office of Strategic Services in World War II, and while Bill Donovan, General Donovan, um, we've always had a mixtures of you know military types, academics, business people, scientists, engineers. It's a it's an interesting combination of uh, folks. And it really makes for an interesting place to work, quite frankly. For my, for my unit, which was just one component of the broader agency, we did select primarily from U.S. special operations, and all, will, all of them came from the military. So that was our pool. But again, they really look for people because we do missions in a much smaller manner with much less support. And that is really necessary to conduct a covert operation. So we look for people who can work in small units, uh, essentially keep a low profile, um, obviously a team player, obviously a never quit attitude, but also one where they just have to be able to figure it out. There's no doctrine or manuals for a lot of what we do. And so that's what we look at. The broader agency looks at many things. They look at, uh, you know, in certain sense, everything I just mentioned, but they also need a diverse group of people, um, which is good in general in the United States government, but it's also really important when it comes to the agency being able to collect information around the world, right? It needs to, we need to have people that can speak the languages, come from the cultures, can fit in. That's very important. And it's a big, it's a big factor uh, for the agency is uh, to make sure it has a diverse uh, workforce uh, because that is what's necessary, not only for doing what's right um, ethically and under the law, but also because it's really needed for uh, the places we want to operate are all over the world. So that's, they really look for that and they spend in it. I think uh, the intelligence agencies and probably JSOC um, as well do spend a lot of time on selection. Because you got to make sure you have the right person. And that's personality tests. It's psychological tests. It's intel intelligence tests. These are all things that are done to select people into the highest level of intelligence services and special operations. Okay. Yeah. Diversity, I believe, is very important when it comes to teamwork. And I think that that's one of the unique part, uh, I would say, of agencies like CIA. And, you know, because we have always seen that, you know, the even a small intelligence is very much crucial to even change the shape of a nation, a region, a continent, or even a course of a nation for several decades. So from that perspective, can you share an, uh, you know, historical example uh, where, you know, a successful operation had a significant impact on several events? Yes, uh, I would pick two since they're different, but they're both a special operation. The first one, and I'll just go chronologically, and I did a paper, an academic paper for the Middle East Institute on it. It was a case study on irregular warfare with 
uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Ken Tobo and a currently serving um, very senior uh, CIA officer whose name in the article is just Andy or Uncle Andy, as we call him. Um, and that focuses primarily on the combination of U.S. military special operations and CIA special operations at the beginning of the war in Iraq. Now, no matter what you think of the decision to go to a war in Iraq, and I was not one that thought that was advisable, but uh, nobody was asking me at the time. Um, but the the mission between those two in northern Iraq, I think, is an example of how um, those two special operations group can and should work together. It, uh, it focused on the capabilities of both. In that case, it was 10th Special Forces Group, uh, U.S. Army Green Berets, and my unit, Special Activity Center. And we went in way before the war. We organized our partner force, which is the Kurdish Pe Peshmerga. We found and identified enemy positions, all the 13 uh, uh, divisions of the Republican Guard that were arrayed in the north. We took on and defeated Ansar al-Islam and what was called Operation Viking Hammer uh, 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 with, of course, our per Kurdish Peshmerga. And we became the northern front of the U.S. effort uh, because we weren't allowed to get 4th Infantry Division in through Turkey, we basically had to do most of that with the partner force, which is a special operations mission. And we became with, along with a lot of Kurdish Peshmerga, the Northern Front, liberated Mosul and Kirkuk and essentially stopped on the outskirts of Baghdad. Uh, and that's in, in detail. Um, and to the point of your question, Omkar, not only was it successful for the immediate mission, and we made up for a lack of our ability to bring in conventional forces. We, of course, would have preferred to have the entirety of fourth ID. Um, but it also set up the next phase. And what I mean by that is all the relationships we made, both the agency and Department of Defense, with the Kurds in the northern part of Iraq facilitated our program in Syria with the uh, the Kurdish part of what's the called the Syrian Defense Forces, which were primarily responsible for defeating ISIS in Syria. So it shows that those opera that operation itself um, fed the successful operation in the defeat uh, ISIS in the global war against ISIS. So that's that would be one example I would use. And if you're interested, there's a paper, if you, I think you probably just uh, Google Mulroy and uh, Tovo, T-O-V-O. Yes. Uh, you should probably be able to find it. Uh, and then the other one that I would point out is one that uh, everybody's familiar with, but it would be the operation in Abbottabad that, that uh, led to uh, the finding and killing of Osama bin Laden, right? So that was, uh, I, I bring it up because it's almost all in the public. And as you would guess, I'm yes. not authorized to talk about uh, most of the operations um, that I know of, yes. but this one everybody knows of, right? I mean, yes, it was yes. like, I mean, it took a matter of, uh, the operational security from the political side was not very helpful, I would say, uh, in telling the world how we did so much of what we did. But to, to go to the good parts of it, it was a fusion of 
the CIA, uh, big CIA, but also my unit in particular, that was able to locate uh, individuals that we knew were associated with um, Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda, um, and essentially start narrowing it down to a certain compound, of which then the entire IC um, focused on, and I will just say what's public, you know, looking at it, trying to find individuals walking around that would fit his size, trying to put people in the area that could watch, all the things that we did that then led to um, the assault done by the SEAL Team 6, but under the auspices, essentially detailed to the agency, so that if we wanted to, we could have kept it covert. Uh, it obviously was successful, and I don't think any politician in the world would have wanted to keep it covert yes. after that, but it gave us the, the, uh, they gave us the option, I should say. So it took the two components of the agency or the, the CIA special activities actually finding the individual that led to the compound that then brought in all the elements of the ICC. And it also brought uh, the great relationship the agency built over you know, many, many years fighting the global war on terrorists with JSOC to bring in them to execute that mission. Uh, so what? So and that mission wasn't in and of itself the end state, right? Because once you target successfully a terrorist leader, especially the terrorist leader, all the information that there that's in there leads to finding another terrorist leader and conducting another operation, and then exploiting that to do another and another. And I and I would I would bet that information that we found in Abbottabad was absolutely key to multiple other Al-Qaeda senior leaders meeting their demise and potentially to eventually getting uh, uh, Ayman Zawahiri in Kabul. It, it might be a stretch, but I bet you that there was information that led to some other information, led to some other operation that did eventually lead to success, the agency successfully targeting uh, the then leader of Al-Qaeda in, in Kabul. So that's those are the two that I would highlight and not just for their success but also for the future success that they brought yeah i believe you mentioned a really good important point i would say especially about the synergies and the fusion i would say in, in between the agencies uh, and the units uh, because this is one of the primary points i believe that has been lacking in most of the uh, places here in the systems in Europe, I would say, because uh, I personally work in the military satellite communication segment, and the issue that ha happens, you know, there is there is synergy between some of the units uh, in coordinating what uh, things are need to be done and why it needs to be done, but I would say there is no streamlining at the moment, and I think this this is this operation that you mentioned. Uh, it it really pro is a kind of inspiration, I would say, for the units to how to manage, you know, the synergies between uh, them, because a success is not possible without you know coordination and having the same synergies. Uh, without that, I believe, you know, uh, you cannot really execute a successful operation. I totally agree. In fact, we bring that up in that paper, uh, and we in Lobo Institute we train, we do tactical training courses up here in Montana. Uh, for um, special operation forces, conventional forces, both from the military, law enforcement, and um, 
other government agencies. And one of the factors we really push on is before September 11, 2001, we had a lot of very stovepipe operations. You know, the FBI didn't talk to the CIA, the CIA didn't talk to the military and vice versa. And then because of necessity, we all started talking to each other uh, all the time after 9-11. And it proved, especially between the agency and the military, to be incredibly helpful um, in the success yes. of the overall mission. Because at the end of the day, we're all on the same team, right? So it really yes. shouldn't matter to people who gets credit, right? The old Harry Truman um, quote, doesn't matter. Uh, it, a lot can be done if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Uh, that's where we were. That's where we should stay. And um, we're concerned that we're going to go back to our individual uh, tribes, if you will, and not continue to do training together as we fight, because that is how we fight. We've proven that's how we fight. So we should also continue to train that way and not lose focus on what good came out of the last 20 years of fighting, in, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yes. And, you know, I mean, <clears throat> this completely brings me to one question, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the ground operation. And one of the reasons, because I, I work in the technology segment, actually, the military satellite communication, uh, as well as, you know, the mobility equipments as well, uh, which are used by the armed forces here in Europe. Uh, so what is the role of modern technology in the world of espionage? And how has it evolved over the years? So it has evolved incredibly. And there's some pitfalls and some, obviously, benefits that I would highlight without going into, you know, sources, methods, and and all the things that uh, is, is absolutely paramount for any intelligence person to uh, protect. So technology, as you guessed, I mean, in the old days, everything was face-to-face. That's not necessarily needed now. Uh, if it's if it protects if it protects sources, then it should be looked at, and it and, and we should not be stuck in our old ways. Like my God, this is the way they taught me at the farm, so this is the only way it can be done. Uh, if we do that, we'll quickly become obsolete. Uh, but there's a cautionary tale with that. If you don't learn the basics. If the technology yes. fails, uh, you're screwed, right? So you do have to learn the basics before you can rely on technology to essentially make up for or replace the basics when it comes to human espionage. And I think, and I don't know, but I would assume that the current, uh, you know, what we call the farm, the training that uh, uh, agency officers go through that are going to be operatives that they are doing both. They are teaching the basics and then incorporating technology as an aid and not as a crutch. Because, uh, you know, the, the pitfall of technology, although it can be really good in many cases, is that, for example, future, uh, fu- and the ability in the future for intelligence services, or I should say counterintelligence services, to look back and determine um, that something happened from technology they didn't have at the time it happened. You see what I mean? That is something that is very, that is very concerning to intelligence agencies that they're, they don't use technology today that they believe is, is secure and uncrackable only to find out that five years later, it has become um, not secure and crackable and it could 
lead to exposing uh, sources and methods. So there's, uh, yes. I know that saying both, but that's, that's the way the world we live in. There's no uh, black and white. It's all gray. Technology can be incredibly enhancing, but it can also be used against you in the future. And you need to be able to do the traditional means uh, of, of espionage if you need to. Yes, I believe it is very essential to learn the basics first because in just the previous episode, I had one guest from Israel Securities Agency, a former officer, and he mentioned, he gave literally a live example of the current events that are happening. So he said in the same way, as you mentioned, okay, it's, it's good to be dependent on the technology. Everything is fine. It gives us, you know, uh, the results at our fingertips. Uh, but we shouldn't get rid of the human intelligence or the human workforce because he mentioned that when the Hamas was carrying out an attack, there, there, there were you know literally no forces or the you know human forces were not there uh, while they were entering through the gates. It's it's all the surveillance cameras were there, and that's how you know the successful penetration was uh, happening into their territory. Uh, so he he also highlighted uh, this point, you know. So I agree with you that you know every I think every person from the intelligence services uh, would agree to this fact that you know the human intelligence will always have its own importance uh, because of course technology has its own advantages, but uh, not everything can be done. You need a ground surveillance, you need a ground asset to actually you know uh, gather the information, verify it, rectify it, and then fit it to you know the agencies. I agree, and that unfortunately is a good example of uh, what we're talking about. Um, it's believed, I don't know, I haven't seen the after action or have I, would I expect it to be done yet, but a lot of people believe that too much was done reliant on uh, technical means of uh, collecting information, you know, either yes. uh, uh, communications, intercepts, et cetera, overhead imagery, stuff like that instead of putting humans on the ground or recruiting humans on the ground and that they just were uh, caught unawares that this massive operation was about to be launched against their civilian population. And then on that's the Intel side on the security side. Uh, a lot of people believe that uh, Hamas used their own technology drones to take out a lot of the cameras that were used to, um, operate the automatic weapon systems that were around a lot of the positions. And once they were out, yes. they couldn't obviously use these automatic machine guns. So if you become too reliant on technology, um, that is a cautionary tale, unfortunately. The, yes. The, it, that horrible um, you know, terrorist attack on uh, the Israeli population could have been avoided. And yes. as, this is to pick on, pick on Shin Bet and IDF. Uh, the U.S. obviously had and I, I'm biased, but I think we have the best intelligence services in the world. We obviously have, have made failures too. So uh, the one professional part of any organization is the ability to identify when you make critical mistakes and, and fix yourself. So I'm sure that they will. They are a, an exceptional military and intelligence service, but they need to look at just what, when, what, what went wrong there and what needs to change. Yes. Uh, I'm really glad you uh, extended on this issue as well. Uh, you know, I I'm coming to that point of Israel-Palestine as well as the Russia-Ukraine issue. Uh, but, you know, just to close the uh, side on the intelligence gathering, uh, this is, you know, uh, a question, you know, from, I would say, 
a personal side as well because a lot of my friends uh, who are you know from the states uh, have seen this event very closely and it has been you know security turn turning point i would say in the history of the world uh, so how has the landscape of intelligence gathering and special operations changed since the post uh, 911 era well i think primarily it it has pushed the agency in my opinion if we talk start with the agency and get broader to realize that it is essentially uh multi missions that aren't ever going to go away i mean we and i have been involved in writing national strategy uh in my last position which was a policy position but yes you could have a national strategy that uh prioritizes china and russia then you know the rogue states of iran and north korea and then counterterrorism is fifth uh but the enemy gets a vote so if the enemy pulls off another 911 uh we are going to be have to be because uh we're going to be directed to be a very large ct fighting organization and we will again if that happens we have to maintain all of our efforts against russia and china but we also have to have the ability to adjust and we i think should stop talking about you know we're going to pivot back to our core mission our core mission in the agency's also always been um traditional collection of intelligence but also the paramilitary and it's going to get increasingly more so in the technology realm so we have to adapt and we have to accept that our mission is multifaceted and it's not just what we would like to do uh the broader and that is that is broad if that is also the same as you know the other intelligence services uh and we have many you know in our intelligence community as they call it in the US that falls under the DNI uh they too need to realize that their job is to collect information the best way that they can and not just the way they have and that they are uh going to be tasked based on what's happening in the world and not just what a strategy although i agree strategy should be made but they have to be adjustable and it has to you know i don't know how many times i'm sure where how many times the us said we're going to just focus on china and now we see what's happening in gaza right yes. um and just how quickly the entire world has mm-hmm. shifted um again that doesn't mean that china's not a more important more substantial adversary it is but we don't just get to choose what we what we are focused on sometimes that gets chosen for us the further part of the conversation will be continued in episode 38 so i kindly request you to hop on to episode 38 thank you and enjoy the conversation thank you for listening to this episode if you find our podcast insightful then please like share and subscribe See you in the next episode. Thank you.